good morning today scripture reading is first john five five through eight who is it that overcomes the world only he who believes in jesus is the son of god this is the one who came by water and blood jesus christ he did not come by water only but by water and blood and it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth for there are three that testify the spirit the water and the blood and the three are in agreement before we get into this sermon i'd like to make a couple of announcements real quick one is to remind you that this wednesday is the deadline for turning in recommendation forms for shepherds for this church if you haven't turned any in yet please pick them up at the the blank forms out at the welcome center be sure and have them back by wednesday anything comes in after wednesday we won't be able to count so help us out help us pick the men god wants to lead this church we have a great eldership and we'd like to add some men to it to make it even greater also i want to remind you that next sunday is our annual um, contribution for eem eastern european missions it's an amazing ministry started out smuggling bibles into russia back when they had that big iron curtain well the iron curtain's gone and russia is actually inviting us to provide bibles to their public schools and to provide training for teachers to teach bible in public schools and eem has seized on that and they've poured thousands of bibles into public schools in russia and now they have the opportunity to also provide bibles to um, the people who are fleeing the refugees fleeing parts of the world where nobody wants to live but unable to find another place and in their route we try to give them a bible so they can find the hope of jesus christ along with a new home so be prepared to help with that next week okay now to the sermon as one who was born and raised in houston texas let me take this opportunity to congratulate the houston astros on winning the 2017 world series it's good to see a hometown team come out on top and believe me that rarely ever happens in houston you know their basketball team the rockets well they won a couple of nba titles back in the mid 90s back to back and their previous football team, the Oilers, Houston Oilers were Houston's football team for 37 years. Well, they won the AFL championship the first two years the league existed before anybody really knew how to play. And their current football team, the Houston Texans, they've been playing for about 16 years and they've not won much of anything. Certainly not championship rings. So you can see that winning is not a big tradition in Houston. I used to uh, work at Houston Alder football games. I had to work the first half. I could watch the second half of the game free. Every game, every home game of every season, I went to one. You know, now, now I'm getting out of here before the crowd leaves. Uh, winning is not a big tradition in Houston. And when it comes to sports, now we like our winners. Winning's the name of the game. Losers never win. Well, I did hear they might start this professional weight loss competition 
where you actually win by losing. But the future for that looks pretty slim. <laughs> I made that up, y'all. <laughs> the stories of winning that thrill us the most are the ones where the underdog comes out on top. We just love those stories when David's whip Goliaths. Well, let me tell you about a time a David-type team played a Goliath-type team, but the end of the story was not pretty at all. This year is the 101st anniversary of the most brutally devastating football route in all of history. A David took on Goliath and lived to regret it. Georgia Tech, this was back in the 1900s, early 1900s, Georgia Tech and Cumberland College lined up on Grant Field in Atlanta, Georgia. That's, a, that's an actual picture of part of the game. Now, one look at the two teams, you knew somebody was in trouble. On the Georgia Tech side, the players were huge, monstrous. They were trained by no less than John Heisman himself. You ever heard of the Heisman Trophy, the highest award in college football? Well, he was that John Heisman. And he was a great coach and innovator. He, he invented the forward pass, the center snap. He even invented scoreboards that had more than just the score on them. They had the quarters and the timeouts. He was a great innovator. He was also a little bit eccentric. For instance, he outlawed soup or bathing in hot water for anybody on his team. He said soup and hot water baths make you weak. He wouldn't let his players eat pastry, pork, veal, hot bread, nuts, apples, or coffee. When asked why, he said, those things don't agree with, agree with me. They better not agree with you. <laughs> well, two things came together for this catastrophe. One was Cumberland's side of the story. They were a private Presbyterian college, a small school, and they were in financial trouble, such deep financial trouble that they had to cancel their football program that year. They just forgot to tell Georgia Tech whom they were scheduled to play. But Georgia Tech offered them $500 to show up and play as the league schedule advertised. Now, on Georgia Tech's part, John Hasman was also the baseball coach. In the previous spring, Cumberland had rounded up a bunch of semi-pros and snuck them onto their team to play the game against Georgia Tech, and they won that game by 22 to nothing. John Heisman wanted some revenge. Well, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, with eight all-Southern players, probably the best football team on the planet at the time, was on one side of the field. Now, since they had no football team that year, Cumberland just sent 17 guys who were all members of the same fraternity. Their team didn't even have a coach. It was run by a manager. Some of them had never played football. Even the trip to Atlanta was a disaster. Several team members missed the train after a layover in Nashville. Later, they were mighty glad they did. So a thousand spectators lined up to observe this contest. The game began. Cumberland received the opening kickoff. They failed to make a first down. They never made a first down the whole game. So they punted. Georgia Tech scored on their first play from scrimmage. Cumberland then 
they kicked off to Cumberland again. They fumbled on their first play from scrimmage. And Georgia Tech returned the fumble for a touchdown. So Georgia Tech kicks off again. Cumberland fumbles again. This time it takes Georgia Tech two plays to score. Kick off again. Cumberland loses nine yards on its next possession, but they don't fumble. Well, Georgia Tech, they score a touchdown, their fourth touchdown after just two plays. At halftime, Georgia Tech led 63 to nothing. I'm sorry, not at halftime. At the end of the first quarter. At halftime, it was 126 to nothing. Georgia Tech compiled 978 yards, 32 touchdowns, all by rushing, none by passing. They forced 15 turnovers. They held Cumberland to minus 28 yards of offense. The game only lasted 45 minutes. They finally cut five minutes off at the end out of some sort of mercy. The final score was 222 to nothing. I'm sorry, 220 to nothing. 220 to nothing. The 22 to nothing baseball loss was avenged by a 220 to nothing football win. Even though it was so lopsided, though, the rest of the game had some tension, had some drama. Nobody questioned who would win. The question was, would Cumberland players be convinced to even finish the game? Because, see, if they quit, they wouldn't get their $500. And so the manager, George Allen, he would pace the sidelines, exhorting the team, hang in there for Cumberland's money. They did. And with it, they endured the worst loss in college football history, 220 to zero. That David and Goliath story didn't go too well, did it? Nobody likes to lose. We certainly don't like to be blown out. We prefer to win, to overcome, to be victorious. Well, as important as sports are, keep in mind that each of us is engaged in a contest we dare not lose. Satan wants to overwhelm you. And he would if he could. It would be like Georgia Tech playing Cumberland. But God won't let him tempt us beyond what we're able to resist. And one of the things I found rewarding about this passage from 1 John, 1 John chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 12, was its emphasis on overcoming. Overcoming the world, especially when you're a David fighting a Goliath. Verses 4 and 5 say, For everyone born of God, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Three times he uses that term overcome. Overcomes, overcome, overcomes. Victory, victory, victory. Do you want victory for the most important contest in your life? The contest for your soul? Well, let this passage show you how to win. Verse 1 tells us, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then verse 4 goes on to say, everyone born of God overcomes the world. 
So when we're born of God, we overcome the world. He goes on to, to stress the importance of faith by saying this is the victory <clears throat> that overcomes the world, even our faith. And then verse 5 reiterates that we overcome the world by believing in Jesus as the Son of God. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, along the way through these verses, John explains what overcoming the world looks like. That's good old religious language, but what does it look like? Well, first of all, overcomers, they'll love Jesus. Verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Now, child there is singular. It doesn't say we'll love his children as well. Everyone who loves the Father will love his child as well, his only begotten son, Jesus. Now, verse 2 goes on and carries love over to the children of God. And throughout the process, it's all about loving the Father, loving the Son, loving others loving the Father. That's how we overcome the world. And then our love is finally verified through our obedience to Christ. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. And we'll come back to that phrase in just a minute. But look first how love and obedience are inseparably connected. Claiming love doesn't prove love. Demonstrating it does. Demonstrating love for others is the way we prove our love for God. Notice how love for God is authenticated in acting in love toward others. Anybody can sit here and say, I love God. Anybody can sit here and say, I want the best thing for my neighbor. They understand what agape love is. But the proof is in the demonstration. Love is a verb, an action word. It doesn't always involve our emotions, but it does always involve some demonstration of our will. We overcome the world by choosing love. Love for the son. Love for neighbor. Love for God. God the Father whom we obey. Now let's turn back to that phrase I told you we'd skip just for a second. At first it throws me off balance. This is love for God to obey his commands. I get that part. And his commands are not burdensome. Are you kidding me? I've been trying to live out God's commands all my life and I'm constantly dropping the ball. How can he say God's commands are not burdensome? Well think of it this way. In America, it's the law that parents have to take care of their kids. They have to feed them. They have to clothe them. They have to give them a place to live. If you don't feed, clothe, or house your kids, somebody's going to come and take them away from you. It's the law. Now imagine this young couple, they have a new baby, and the family police show up. And they say, are you aware the law says you have to take care of this baby? And the mother 
rocking her child says, I don't need a law to make me take care of my baby. Why? Because she loves her baby. She feeds it, she holds it, she changes it because she loves it. Same thing with the father. Where true Christian love exists, no laws are needed. And God's commands then become not burdens we have to keep, but good guidance we benefit from. God's commands are not burdens to those who love him. They're blessings. So we overcome through a new birth, which is authenticated through love of God, love the Son, love neighbors, obedience to God. Victory over the world is promised to all those who are born of God in faith and love. Now, that was the easy part of the passage. Let's get to the hard part. God doesn't ask us to blindly buy off on this promise. We have witnesses providing this testimony, proving that God is willing and able to save us. Back to the verses you heard read earlier. This is the one, it's referring to Jesus. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are all in agreement. Three agreeing witnesses. Spirit, water, and blood. Now, be honest with you, these are some of the hardest verses in Scripture. Some of the Bible scholars I respect the most will actually say this is the hardest verse to interpret in all of the New Testament. But here's what I think he's saying. First of all, he says that the Holy Spirit will testify that Jesus is God's Son. It is the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Well, how does the Spirit testify? Several ways. Remember at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended on him, the form of a dove, and a voice came out of heaven that said, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That was a testimony of who Jesus really was, the Son of God, brought by the Spirit. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, the Spirit enabled him to speak what no other man could speak and do what no other man could do. The testimony of the Scripture, or the Spirit obviously comes through Scripture. As we read Scripture, we hear what the Spirit has to say. And then verse 10 tells us the Spirit testifies in our hearts. Now, I know some of us are uncomfortable with that. That... God as Father or Son, Jesus, or Spirit would speak to our heart. But please notice, I didn't make that up. John did. And Paul agrees with him. Romans 8 and 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit is the first witness. The second witness is the water. Actually, the water and the blood. I'm going to put those together. I think it's easier. Remember the context of the letter. Some people in John's church 
didn't believe Jesus was God in the flesh. That was the big issue for them. They believed that maybe the Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, but the Spirit had to leave him before his crucifixion because, my, how could God be killed on a cross? Their view was God can't be born. He can't die. So he couldn't be Jesus, or Jesus couldn't be God. Well, think of the water here as baptism. At the Lord's baptism, the Spirit descended, came down from heaven in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. That's testimony to who Jesus really was. Now, that could kind of fit the false teacher's theory. Maybe Jesus wasn't born God, but God came on him later. But John makes a point of adding the blood. Look how he does it. This is the one who came by water and blood. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Now, those false teachers, they couldn't imagine God on a cross. But scripture claims God, as the Son, died there. And that testimony is in direct opposition to what the false teachers are saying. The crucifixion and all that went on at the cross declare that Jesus was God's anointed Messiah. And through him, God the Father will save the world. Three witnesses testify to these truths. They give testimony. What's the testimony? What are the spirit, the water, and the blood claiming? Verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He reiterates it. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Through faith in Jesus that leads to the new birth, that leads to love for God and others and obedience to our Father's will, we can overcome the world and receive eternal life. That's the testimony of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. But for some reason, we're very reluctant to trust such good news. It's, it's kind of like when Uncle Oscar went on his first airplane ride. He was scared to get on that plane. And so when the plane ride was over, his friends all wanted to find out about it. So the, how, how, how was it, Oscar? He said, well, it wasn't bad as I thought it was. But I never did let my weight down the whole time. Some of us try to follow Christ that way. We believe, but not enough to love like he loved or obey God like he obeyed. Let me urge you, let all your weight down on Jesus, and the results will be victory. In our battle to overcome sin and evil in our hearts and in our lives, we're, we're much like Cumberland, and Satan's a whole lot like Georgia Tech. We're outmatched, outwitted by our enemy. Satan will gladly crush us in smashing defeat. But we can have Jesus on our team. And through him, overcome anything the devil throws at us. Let's stand and sing together.